Thank you for that, that was amazing. Every time I come up here, you guys clap for me and I take that so personal. 
Just kidding, you guys did an amazing. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Throughout the year, we take the time to celebrate very important things, not just for the church, but for our nation. And today, we get the blessing and the privilege uh, to celebrate Black History Month. See, during this month, we remember and celebrate the achievements of the African-American community and their contribution and central role in the history of our nation. As Christians, though, we ought to celebrate that, but we also want to celebrate uh, the fact that the Lord has used the African-American community to contribute to the Christianity of our nation. They have played a very important role to the Christianity of our nation. Therefore, today, we want to remember, honor, and celebrate a few of those people that the Lord has used in our history as Christians. Today, we want to remember Richard Allen, one of the most active and influential ministers, educators, writers, and leaders who mobilized the black community to serve the sick and the dying during the Philadelphia yellow fever epidemic. We also want to remember... Of course, Harriet Tubman, the spirit-led warrior who led hundreds of, of slaves to freedom through the Underground Railroad saying, Lord, I'm going to hold steady unto you, and you got to see me through. And certainly the Lord did that. We want to remember and celebrate Dr. Gardner Taylor, an American Baptist preacher known as the Dean of the Nation's Black Preachers, who shaped a generation of preachers and God's people in his poetic preaching as well as his deep understanding of faith and theology. Today we remember Mahalia Jackson, an American gospel singer who is widely considered one of the most influential vocalists of the 20th century and that sang at the historic March and Washington at the request of Dr. King. Today we want to remember and celebrate Tom Skinner, a former uh, GAM leader in Harlem who was radically transformed by the power of the gospel and became one of the most powerful evangelists in more than 70 different countries sharing the gospel for over 30 years. We want to celebrate and remember people like Dr. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. Perkins, Drs. Brian Loritz and Crawford Loritz, Dr. Charlie Dates, which is a more, uh, more recent a pastor, and the Bible teacher and artist Jackie Hill Perry, among so many others. The question that someone may be asking is, why is it that we take the time to celebrate this? So let me answer it this way. We are grateful that our King of Glory in Jesus came to establish a multicolor, multi-ethnic, multicultural kingdom, a kingdom when people from every nation and tribe and languages and ethnicity reflects the image and the beauty of God. That's why as church, we have to say, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory forever and ever, amen. And the church says, let's give him glory.
Oh, do 
You may be seated. I love those words, grant us wisdom, grant us courage for the living of these days, that we may may not fail, man nor thee. I'm in a place for you Bible study with some women from the church, and we're going through Genesis 12 through 50. And we laugh at the end of every week's discussion because they all come, all the application questions come back to two specific themes that we can't seem to get our minds around or fix by the next week. We can either trust or we can trust God because he's trustworthy and we can wait on him because he's faithful. It's interesting to see how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob struggled to do these very two simple things that we can't seem to do either. And maybe you're like me and you have a trouble or a situation in which you are asking God to intervene and asking him to work out his will desperately, but it feels like nothing is changing. And I don't know why that might be, and we'll let Josh answer all our theological questions in his sermon later. But for now, we know that we can look back and see how faithful and trustworthy our God has been in ages past throughout the history of all our faith so that we can trust and wait on him today. Let's pray together. Our Father, we want to thank you for your amazing grace and glory that we see so clearly as you work out your plan throughout the Bible. We confess that so often in the midst of our trials, it's hard to trust you and it's hard to wait on you to bring about your will. We have so many questions about why you allow certain things to happen, and yet we know that you are trustworthy even in our darkest days. Forgive us, Lord. We believe in you. Help our unbelief. Today, as we talk about troubles from John 16, would you speak to us as your people? May you be glorified in how we rest in you as your dearly loved children. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and recite the Nicene Creed. It reminds us of all that we believe by faith as a body of Christ together. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified. I believe in one holy universal and apostolic church. I believe in the remission of sins 
and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's sing together.
Good morning. It's so great to see you here today. I'm Michael, and I serve with our creative team. And I'm Hannah, and I serve with our student team at our West Chicago campus. Michael, over the last few months, we've had a lot of people who have been coming here for the first time or just coming back for the first time in a long time, which is awesome. How did you get connected whenever you were new at a church? Well, being on staff here was a little bit different, but True. when I was at a church in Oak Park and we were new there, um, one of the things we did was go to this thing called the freeway that they had. Ooh, that sounds fancy. It was. It was really nice. You got to meet with a pastor, got to ask some questions about the church, learn some things, and then also get connected with a volunteer or small group. Wow, that sounds super awesome. And I know at Wheaton Bible, we don't have something called the freeway, but we do have something called the growth track. Have you heard of it? I have, and it sounds almost identical to the freeway. And it basically is. So if you are new here and you've been wanting to connect here at Wheaton Bible Church and maybe get some more information of what's going on here, what it looks like to get connected, or just start out connecting with others, we would love to invite you to the growth track. And it starts next Sunday at 1 p.m. So you can get more information at our website at wheatonbible.org slash growth track. Yeah. Well, if you're not going to be going to the growth track, one of the things that I like to do on a Sunday afternoon is get a nice nap. Mm, you're Recharge. a napper. Yep. I am not a napper. Physically incapable. Well, I think you should try it. I mean. <laughs> but if you, whether you get a nap or not, I guess you can come to the prayer night. So you're about to hear me say that it's at 7 o'clock. It's not. It's at 5 o'clock. So we'll see you at the prayer night at 5 o'clock. At 7 o'clock that night. Yes. I love prayer nights at Wheaton Bible Church because I think it's a super great opportunity for just our entire church body to gather and pray over our church, to pray for our communities, to pray for our nation. And so if you're wanting to come to our prayer night, it's next Sunday, March 7th at 7 p.m. Yeah. We'd love to see you there. Do register ahead of time um, just so that we are able to keep all of our social distancing and all of that together. Yeah, well, I think that's all we have for y'all. So thanks for spending part of your weekend with us, and we hope you have an amazing week. All right, the celebration continues. And we have right here, I think that one of you guys got to be there and the other one over here somewhere. Oh, okay. Yeah. Social distance, people. <laughs> I don't know if you guys knew this, I'm assuming that you did, but 12 years ago, we started this beautiful, amazing ministry called Puente del Pueblo. And part of the reason why we started that ministry is because as a church, we believe that uh, we are here to serve and edify Christians, but we are here and the Lord placed us here to serve and uh, our community and reach our community. Um, now, part of the reason why I'm doing this and I was asked to do this is because I was part of the team that put the, the whole thing together. And I remember one of the first questions as a team was, who do we need to bring to make sure that this thing is successful? And the Lord brought us this amazing man. And I'm not, uh, I'm not exaggerating when I say that Matthew, he likes to be called Mateo, just so you know. Uh, but Matthew, uh, it, it was God sent. This is a man that from the beginning, I could see personally at a personal level that he, this is a man that loves the church, that loves people, but loves our people in our community, that he has a heart, that the Lord gave you a heart to love the widow and the orphan and the poor and the immigrant and anybody that is in your surroundings. Now, as a personal note, I have to say that Matthew has been very important in my life because he has been a prophet within the church and outside the church, a prophet, uh, so he could speak on behalf of Christians to the community, and the Lord has used him in amazing ways. But he also has been a prophet inside the church, reminding us and pushing us to be what we are supposed to be. Now, part of the reason why I have such a close relationship with Matthew is because Matthew, for many years, has been my mother's boss. 
and that puts us in a really awkward situation. But everything that I'm saying is not just my opinion, but it's the opinion of a woman that has worked under, the, under your leadership. So we love you, brother, and part of the reason why we're doing this is because the Lord has called you to something else. As you know, Puente is this partnership between Witten Bible Church and Outreach Community Center in, in Witten. Uh, actually, Matthew came from there originally, and now the Lord is calling him to be 100% over there again. He's taking a bigger role, more responsibility. So for us, it's actually bittersweet, right? We want to celebrate because the Lord is opening doors for you to be a more influence uh, to the community and organizations like Outreach. Uh, but it's bitter because we're going to lose you, uh, sort of lose you. Right? So can you tell us a little bit what you're going to be doing at Outreach now, and how is this relationship going to continue to work? Yeah, absolutely. First, let me just say, uh, church family, it's uh, very meaningful to me the way that you have sacrificially and missionally given to Puente over the past 12 years. I just want you to know, from my perspective, what Wheaton Bible Church and Iglesia del Pueblo has achieved outside the walls of this church in terms of impact and love to this community is meaningful. The kingdom of Christ has advanced because of your work and sacrifice, and it's very meaningful to me and my family. Um, in my new role, uh, you know, Outreach Community Ministries has a couple different service sites like Puente across the county, and I will have the pleasure of giving leadership to them, which allows me in one way to stay on Puente's leadership team and to supervise our new director, Saul Flores. So I'm introducing Saul Flores as our new director. You can clap for that. We're so excited to have him. Uh, Saul joined the staff of Puente del Pueblo in 2014 as our high school program coordinator. He did a fantastic job with that program. There's now 50 students. We've had a lot of first in the family uh, students go to college for the first time. He's had 15 staff and volunteers. So we are absolutely confident he's the right guy for the job. We're so excited for this. Saul, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you would like us to be praying for? Definitely. Church, first I wanna say I'm super excited to see what God has uh, moving forward with Puente. And, uh, and I wanna thank you for being part of it uh, because it's really a ministry of our church, all of you. Uh, so I want you to pray for boldness, for all volunteers, or staff to share, continue to share the gospel. I truly believe it's a time for harvest. Uh, I believe that we have planted and grown and uh, seen growing for a long time, and it is a great time to harvest. So pray for that. So before I let you go, this was not part of the notes, man. So this is brand new information. So I... When I was talking about Matthew, I actually feel the same way about you, just so you know. I think that you do have a heart for the community and for people. Uh, now, what people don't know is that you, for a, for a, for a fragment of time in your, in your history, you actually were a pastor. So when you go into the community, you're not just going as a social worker, per se, right? But a pastor that happens to do social work stuff. So tell us a little bit about your heart for people and why do you love people so much? Definitely. Thank you, Anibal. Um, I love people because I believe God called me to do ministry. That is uh, the plain truth. I think uh, God called me to go to a college, a seminary, and yes, I prepared to be a pastor, and for four years I preached in front of a congregation and shared my heart for people, and God moved us from Mexico as missionaries in Mexico to the U.S., and he just called my heart again. Uh, it's a beautiful story, something I can tell you, but how the way I connected with Matthew, looking for a church, looking for help, and found Puente and ended up helping others. So it, it, I think it's a testimony of what our church is doing too. Amen. How about if we pray for these beautiful, amazing brothers? 
and we con co uh, commission them and send them out as lights and agents of restoration. Lord, I'm so grateful for all these 12 years that you've given us with Matthew. He has been such a testimony of your power and your care and your grace. Lord, we know for sure that you never make mistakes. And you brought him here for a time such as this. And at the same time, Lord, we have the same conviction that you are moving him to something different. Lord, I pray that you bless him and protect him and use him in that role as well. We, we pray for a special blessing upon him and the family since this is a call that involves all of them. And I also want to pray for Saul, Lord. I am so grateful, Lord, that you brought him here. Who would think that you would bring from Mexico a pastor to do this kind of stuff here in the United States? And therefore, Lord, we pray for him. We pray for the family. We pray that you bless them and use them in mighty ways. And we pray for Puente, that Puente continues to be a place in which the afflicted and the widow and the poor and the immigrant and anybody, Lord, that is struggling finds not just uh, financially and social support, but find the gospel. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus and the churches. Thank you, guys. Well, good morning, Wheaton Bible. It is so good to be with you this morning. Let me also extend our welcome to those of you who are connecting with us online. One of the things that we just would ask you to do this morning, just, just tell us where you are connecting with us from, and we would just love to know the reach that we have here at Wheaton Bible. Well, if you do not know, I am Josh Laxton, one of the teaching pastors here at Wheaton Bible, and then also have the opportunity of pouring into and investing in our young adults. Adults. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. Now we're in this series, The Upper Room Discourse, where we are looking at really the final hours of Jesus' earthly ministry with his disciples prior to the cross and his death, right? And we're learning about the things that he's teaching his disciples. And it's actually been a whirlwind because could you imagine being one of the, the 11 now? <laughs> and you've just witnessed all of the, these things that Jesus is telling you. Uh, first of all, you witnessed the fact that you failed the quiz of what it means to be a servant, right? When Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples and teaching them on what it means to be a servant. And then you hear about betrayal. Uh, someone who spent three, three and a half years with you, with Jesus, he's going to be betray Jesus. And then you hear about one of the, the, the main leaders of the 12, Peter, and how he's going to deny Jesus. And then Jesus is like, well, you're guy, you, you guys aren't off the hook yet because uh, you're, you're going to scatter as well. And then to teach on don't let your hearts be troubled to teach on the spirit of God coming, to teach on I'm leaving this world and I'm going back to the Father. I mean, just so many things, so many emotions, so many thoughts running through the minds and hearts of his disciples. They're overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed. Now, I, I, I don't know about you, but I know that in life I'm overwhelmed. 
I get to that point where I'm in distress, that there's so much going on in my mind, in my heart, that I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like, God, what are you doing? Kind of like what Katie was saying is like, uh, God, I'm going to trust you, but it's really hard because of all of the things that are going on. Well, these these emotions, I mean, that's what the disciples are feeling. They're, they're kind of in turmoil. There's so much going on. Jesus is telling them so much. And praise God that we had John at least write these things down. At least he was a good student, right? Writing things down because we, we have the upper room discourse. Well, what we're going to dive into this morning is how do we overcome the troubles in this world? So if you're ready for the main point, say, I'm ready. Here's the main point. To overcome the troubles of this world, you will need to be overwhelmed by the peace of God. If you're going to overcome the troubles of this world, you're going to need to be overwhelmed by the peace of God. So will you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? We're just going to read one verse and uh, we will tackle Uh, the entire passage as the message unfolds. Uh, John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace, okay? In this world you will have what? Trouble. You'll have trouble. I mean, yes, we don't like that. But in this world, here's what Jesus tells his disciples, you will have trouble And this is my favorite conjunction in the scriptures. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Jesus, would you move in our midst? Spirit, will you go to work drawing people to yourself? Go to work shaping and molding us more into the image of our King, King Jesus. And may we leave it different than when we came here this morning. May we be different before we even connected this morning. As a result of your power, your presence moving in and through our lives. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. We're going to look at three things this morning. To flesh out this main point, to overcome the troubles of this world, you have to be overwhelmed by the peace of God. We will look at what and who brings us overwhelming peace. How do we get overwhelming peace? And when do we know we have overwhelming peace? Question number one, what and who brings us overwhelming peace? Well, we see in the first part of verse 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Now, it's really interesting if you look at the entire upper room discourse, uh, Jesus actually has uttered this phrase multiple times. In chapter 13, he says, I'm telling you these things now before they happen, so when they do happen, you will believe that I am who I am. We see in chapter 15, uh, Jesus says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. In chapter 16, verse 1, uh, I've told you all of these things so that you will not fall away. And now we get to the part where Jesus says, I've told you these things so that you may have peace. 
So what are these things? I mean, that would be a great question, right? What, what are these things that Jesus is telling his disciples? Well, here's what he's getting at. Here, here's what these things are. Doctrine. Everybody say doctrine. Doctrine. They're doctrine. He's telling them, he's teaching them about the doctrine, the doctrines of the Christian life. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Now, just so that we're all on the same page, a doctrine is a belief or a set of beliefs held or taught uh, by a church, uh, by a group of people, or by a political party. Now, when it comes to what Jesus is teaching his disciples, think about it. According to Jesus, these things, these doctrines bring about belief and faith, bring about joy, bring about confidence, and now bring about peace. Now, let's dig a little bit deeper into peace. Now, peace is one of the, the, the words really that our English language cannot fully capture when it comes to what the Bible teaches about peace. You, we think of peace as being the absence of conflict, the absence of hostility. But what peace carries, particularly in the Greek and even in the Hebrew, it carries the notion of completeness, well-being, wholeness, contentment, rest. Uh, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom, which some scholars explain is the total flourishing of all creation. In other words, it, it means that everything in all realms of creation function as they intended to function. Now Genesis 1:31 gives us an incredible picture of Shalom. Uh, we read this, God saw that everything that he had made and it was very good. Now think about it. So God looks at creation and he sees it and he sees everything that he has made. He's like, this is very good. It works as it was intended to work. It's flourishing. It's doing everything that I wanted it to do. And then he even looks at humanity, Adam and Eve. He's like, man, this is perfect. This is good. This is harmonious. This is glorious. Now, we understand that shalom didn't last too long, right? Uh, just a couple of chapters later in chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned. And what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? Well, it was the unraveling of order. It was the unraveling of perfection, of completeness. It was the unraveling of shalom, total flourishing in creation. So think about it. Sin unraveled the peace between God and man. A sin created friction and conflict between man and man. A sin created the fear of the other, and it would lead to conflicts and frictions and wars and domination and oppression. It injected into creation a disease whereby it would project elements of disorder and chaos. It created restlessness in individuals leading to identity crises, not being at peace with who we are or what we are doing here on planet Earth. That's what sin did. It unraveled the shalom. It unraveled the com completeness. So because of sin, there is no peace. Because of sin, there is no shalom. But at the same time, humanity longs for shalom. Humanity longs for peace. Humanity longs for completeness. Humanity longs for well-being. 
Which is why mankind throughout history has had worldviews about the world. And within those worldviews, they have created doctrines or philosophies or theologies to explain the world to hope to, with the aim of bringing about some kind of completeness, some kind of harmony, some kind of tranquility, some kind of peace. Now think about it this way. So a worldview is like a house. A worldview is like a House. Now, uh, David Bosch, a, a missiologist and a theologian, said this, Worldviews are integrative and interpretive frameworks by which order and disorder are judged. Uh, they are the stands by which reality is managed and pursued. They are the sets of hinges on which all our everyday thinking and doing turns. So everybody has a house. Everybody has a framework. Everybody has a worldview. But within a house, there are rooms. There are rooms. Now think about it this way. Uh, rooms are the doctrines, the theologies, the philosophies that help humanity understand what the room was designed for. Uh, what you do in the rooms and how you flesh out the doctrines, theologies, and philosophies are aiming to bring about peace and well-being and completeness and harmony within the world. Uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he talks about how theology is immensely practical and he argues how theology uh, and doctrines function as sort of like a roadmap to help you see God more clearly. So let's apply that logic across disciplines and across other doctrines. So, so other doctrines... Other disciplines outside even the Christian worldview, they are there to help them see life more clearly, culture more clearly, society and the world more clearly. And so when you put it together, when you put worldviews and when you put doctrines and theologies all together, here's the question that we all as just human beings have to ask. Is this worldview and are these doctrines and theologies and philosophies, are they producing peace? Are they producing shalom? Are they producing completeness and wholeness and well-being? And see, when you look at philosophies and doctrines of the world, philosophies like humanism, rationalism, existentialism, stoicism, hedonism, or nihilism. When you look at political doctrines like Marxism and socialism and communism and capitalism and libertarianism, here's the question that I think you have to ask is, do they give you a sense of overwhelming peace? Do they have the ability to not only articulate why you are in the world, but do they have the ability to articulate what's wrong with the world? And not only that, do they have the power uh, to overcome the things that are wrong with the world? Now, I'll go ahead and give you the answer about these philosophies and these philosophies of the world and these doctrines of the world. No, they do not have the power to give us the overwhelming peace that every human being desires and long, longs for. For instance, I, I ran across an article this week entitled, How Non-Religious Worldviews Provide Solace in Times of Crisis. It was a very fascinating article. Let me just read, read just, just a couple of sentences from the very beginning. Uh, this author writes, 
I wanted to explore the idea that while non-believers may not hold religious beliefs, they still hold distinct ontological, epistemological, and ethical beliefs about reality. And the idea that these secular beliefs and worldviews provide the non-religious with equivalent, I would argue, about equivalent sources of meaning, similar coping mechanisms as supernatural beliefs of religious individuals. No, they don't. No, they don't. And you know how I know they don't? Because of what Jesus says here to his disciples. Let's go back to verse 28. Because it's actually in verse 28, Jesus summarizes the doctrines that he has been teaching his disciples. And here's what he says. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. So it's in that that summary statement in verse 28, Jesus gives us some doctrines that actually give us overwhelming peace as human beings. Well, what are those doctrines, Josh? Well, I'm so glad that you asked that this morning. Here, here, Here are those doctrines. The incarnation is one of them. Jesus's divinity and incarnation is one of those doctrines. He came from the Father. Wrapped up in the incarnation is God's love for uh, the world. Wrapped up in the incarnation is God dwelling with man. Do Do we realize that from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation, God has been aiming to dwell with man on planet earth. And so in the incarnation, we get a glimpse of God wanting to dwell with man. It's in the incarnation we see the God man, that Jesus wasn't just a man. Oh, no, 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 no. He was the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. He was born of a virgin, so he wasn't tainted by sin. So because he was outside of sin, because he was outside the world, he was able to come and save the world. That's why we need the incarnation. But then we also see the inauguration of an invitation into the kingdom of God. So Jesus entered the world. And so I get this picture of not only Jesus entering the world as the God-man, but I am drawn to the, the entrance of his ministry or the beginning and the start of his ministry where he came on the scene saying, repent for the what? The kingdom of God is at hand. So we have this inauguration that Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of God. And so all of Jesus' signs, all of Jesus' teachings, they're wrapped up into the kingdom of God. So when he heals people in the kingdom of God, there is no illness. When he raises people from the dead in the kingdom of God, there is life. When he forgives sin in the kingdom of God, there are saints. Jesus entered the world. But then we also see the doctrines of substitutionary atonement and redemption. He's leaving the world and he's going back to the Father. This signifies that Jesus came to do what he was sent to do. And what was he sent to do? To seek and to save that which was lost. To give his life as a ransom for many. And so wrapped up in substitutionary atonement is the idea of sin, of wrath, of perfect sacrifice. 
Wrapped up in redemption are the ideas of justification, sanctification, and glorification. It's the idea of being forgiven of your sin. It's the idea of the imputation of Christ that Jesus gave us his heart. He imputed his righteousness. He imputed his heart into our lives. And it's the indwelling. It's the indwelling of the Spirit. And as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, the Spirit convicts, the Spirit conforms, and the Spirit commissions for service. And Jesus, he goes back to the Father sitting at the right hand of God saying, it has been done. And there he intercedes. And there we wait until final consummation. See, that's what Jesus has told his disciples. I love what Paul Tripp says about doctrine. Doctrines are a beautiful gift supplied by a God of amazing grace. They're not burdensome, life-constricting beliefs. They impart new life and new freedom. They are the ecosystem in which the garden of personal transformation grows. You might be sitting here and you, you've always kind of wanted to know what's so important about doctrine? What's so important about theology? That's the importance. Is that doctrines give you this overwhelming peace. Doctrines explain the worldview in which you view reality. But I, I got to show you something else. You want to see something else? If you want to see something else in this, I, I want to share it with you. You want to see something else? Yeah, yeah. Okay, let me, let me show you. Go, go back to verse 28. I'm sorry, not, not 28. Uh, go, go back to verse 33. I have told you these things so that in me, in me, everybody say, in me. Oh, this, you cannot miss this. Jesus is saying that these doctrines, these teachings, they are all wrapped up in me, a person. You see, the reason why we can have overwhelming peace as the people of God, it's not because we read a set of beliefs. No, it's not because we read theology books. No, it's not just because we have the Bible, which is written by God. It's because we have Jesus. It's in Jesus these doctrines are fulfilled. It's in Jesus these doctrines are embodied. And it is in Jesus where we have overwhelming peace. So what and who gives us overwhelming peace? Jesus does. That's why Augustine said, because you, God, made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. Well, the second question is this, how, how, do we, how do we have overwhelming peace? How, how do we get overwhelming peace? So we know the what and the who that gives it to us, but how do we obtain it? Well, I'm glad that you asked that question this morning. But we see that Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, before I explain how we get peace, I want to deal with that, that first part of the, of the sentence where Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. Think about that. Okay, I've written these things so that you might have peace. Yay! But you're going to have trouble. No! Right? Like in this world, you will have trouble. It's not very comforting, right? 
So what Jesus is saying is, while I am your peace, as long as you are in this fallen and broken and sinful world, you're going to have trouble. Now, now the word trouble, it, it actually is a different Greek word than the word trouble that is used in John 14.1. I preached on that passage a, a few weeks ago. Now, this word, philipsis, it actually goes even deeper and broader than the word trouble that is used in John 14. So, philipsis, everybody say philipsis. Man, you are speaking Greek. This is awesome. All right, so here we go. Philipsis can mean persecution, affliction, distress, tribulation, oppression. It can mean hard circumstances, anguish, pressure, burden, suffering. Anybody, anybody dealing with some trouble? Yeah, yeah. And so let that sink in. In this world, you will have thelipsis. So when I think of the word thelipsis, I just think of tailspin in our English word. Like this world is in a tailspin. Many times in our life, we're in a tailspin. In this world, you will have tailspins. You will have trouble. <laughs> but, but, take heart. Take heart. That's what Jesus says. In this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart. Now, that the word take heart is an imperative. It's a command. It means to be bold, be courageous, be confident, stand firm. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the trouble. I like what Tim Keller says about this word. He says, dare to believe. In this world, you will have trouble, but dare to believe. Believe what? Be confident in what? Well, the next phrase is, Jesus has overcome the world. So we, we can take heart. There's this imperative that Jesus has given his disciples that when you, when you face trouble, when you are in trouble in this world, take heart, be confident, be bold, stand firm, dare to believe that I have overcome the world. Now that word overcome, it's where we get our word Nike. And you know what Nike, you know what the swoosh means? It means conquer. It means victory. Well, that's what Jesus is saying. I have overcome. I have conquered. I have won the victory in the world. So just, just think about it. So Nike, they've, they've had Michael Jordan, LeBron James. They've conquered the basketball court. And they've had Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy. They've conquered uh, the golf course. And they've had Ronaldo. He's conquered the soccer field. Oh, but guess what the church has? The church has Jesus has conquered the world. Oh, and you, you don't need to miss this. this I'm telling you, I, I need, in all honesty, I needed this message this week from my own soul. But don't miss this. Jesus didn't aim for overcoming our troubles. He aimed for and hit dead center the very thing that produces our troubles. My wife says I have a low tolerance of pain. That's debatable, okay? 
But anytime I, I, I have a little soreness in my neck or in my back, because the older you get, the, just the more, the more sore you get, right? I mean, and so this, this, you know, this, this winter was kind of really rough, a lot, of, a lot of snow shoveling. You know what I'm saying? A lot of snow shoveling. And so I'd be out there shoveling the driveway. And because the amount of snow that we had, I had to shovel the front yard so that our dog had a place to go to the bathroom. It's like weird. I've never lived in a place where you had to shovel the front yard so that your dog could go out. But I did. And so every time I would finish shoveling, I'd come in. I'm like, I know I'm going to be sore. And guess what? I would I'd go to, the, I'd go to the, the medicine cabinet. I'd grab a couple ibuprofen. And I'd take a couple ibuprofen because... They help alleviate the symptoms of soreness. Why do you say that, Josh? Because Jesus isn't the ibuprofen of the world. He's not just eliminating our soreness. He's not just eliminating our headaches. No, he's eliminating the very thing that causes the headaches. He's eliminating the very thing that causes the soreness. And how does he do this? Through his sacrificial death and resurrection from the dead. If you want to know why Jesus had to die and why it's paramount that he rose again from the dead, it's this right here. Because it's through his atoning sacrifice, his substitutionary death, God's wrath was targeting the world, unraveling order. And so God's wrath, he's got to deal with. He's got to deal with sin. and He's going to deal with it with Jesus on the cross. And Jesus will die for the sin of the world, for the unraveling of peace. But he won't stay dead because three days later, he's going he's to rise from uh, the dead, conquering the world, conquering death, conquering hell, conquering sin. And so you see, now, oh, come in here with this. Jesus' death and resurrection diffuses the cosmos' turmoil due to sin. And he universally does to the cosmos what he did to the storm on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus said, peace be still. That's what the, that's what the, the resurrection has done. Peace be still. So therefore, we, there's coming a time when we won't have to worry about natural disasters. We won't have to worry about epidemics or pandemics. You see, Jesus' death and resurrection dismantles the wicked world. Uh, the kingdom of man and all of its fallen and flawed and fractured structures and systems. You see, Jesus' death and resurrection conquers the world where eventually the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. And so therefore there is coming a day when we won't have to worry about systemic injustice. We will not have to worry about flawed governmental systems. We won't have to worry about corrupt governments and politicians. We won't have to worry about scandals and conspiracies and riots. We won't have to worry about the collapse of the economy. We won't have to worry about divided nations. We won't have to worry about wars or rumors of wars. We won't have to worry about segregated communities and gatherings. We won't have to worry about poverty and homelessness and abortion and euthanasia. Jesus' death and resurrection takes care of that. His 
death and resurrection defeats scheming Satan, the adversary and enemy of God who has been seeking to rob God of his glory and deceive and devour humanity, keeping them in the dark. It was Jesus' death and resurrection that gave a decisive blow to the head of Satan, bringing in the peace of God. Therefore, there is coming a day we won't have to worry about confusion. We won't have to worry about deception. We won't have to worry about being skeptical skeptical about what is true, what is not. We won't have to worry about being tempted and tried. We won't have to worry about being assaulted and attacked for our faith. Jesus' death and resurrection defeats scheming Satan. And then last but not least, Jesus in his death and resurrection deals with fallen flesh, epitomized by a sinful, wicked, and hard heart. You see, Jesus' death and resurrection is the cosmic heart transplant whereby those who trust him, follow him, are given a new heart, his heart. You see, Jesus' death and resurrection is not just a cosmic heart transplant. It's a cosmic adoption process whereby those who follow him, trust him, put their hope and faith in him. They are adopted. They are grafted into the family of God. Therefore, listen to this, guys. There's coming a day we won't have to worry about disappointments, discouragements, and depression. We won't have to worry about looking into the mirror and going, oh, I'm so ugly. I'm so fat. We won't have to worry about betrayal and abandonment, isolation and loneliness, relational strife and estrangement. We won't have to worry about setbacks and defeats. We won't have to worry about frustrations and failures. We won't have to worry about the thorns and thistles of financial hardships, career setbacks and job losses. We won't have to worry about racism. We won't have to worry about hurts, habits, hangups, hardships and heartaches of life because Jesus has died and he has rose again and he has conquered the systems and the structures of the world. I needed that this week. You'll have trouble because you're, you're actually, we're, we're actually living in between the times of the already but not yet. So while we face trouble, we don't have to let our troubles define us. We don't have to let our troubles depress us, debilitate us, or defeat us. Because we take heart. We take heart in what? Jesus has overcome the world. He's overcome. Dare to believe. Maybe you're struggling. Dare to believe. He has overcome the world. Now the third question is when do we know we have overwhelming peace? So we've looked at the what and the who that brings, how, but when do we know? Hey, you're probably sitting out there because I, again, I needed this this week. I need to know, when do I know I have overwhelming peace? When, when do I know I have the peace of God in my life, even when I face troubles, right? Here we go. Number one, ask yourself these three questions. These three questions. Here we go. Do you run to the Father when you are troubled? Do you run to the Father when you are troubled? If you're taking notes, just mark 
Verse 23 and 24 of chapter 16, here's what Jesus says. In that day, you will no longer ask anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. What is Jesus saying? Seeing there's coming a time where you don't even have to run to me. You can run straight to the Father. Like I, I no longer have to be your mediator. Because once and for all through the cross and the resurrection, I have become your mediator. You can run straight to the Father. Now in the, in the Laxton house, uh, let me tell you what happens. Uh, Joni is the one that our kids run to when they're in trouble. I'm hungry. Mama, you know, the internet's down. They don't come to daddy's office. They go, mama, hey, the internet's down. I mean, my wife, I mean, she is super woman. I mean, so she, uh, she is the internet technician. Uh, she's the one that can change the light bulbs in the house. She's the one that can cook a mean dinner. I mean, so anytime my children are in trouble, they run to mama. Kind of makes me feel a little weird. But nevertheless, old Joni is a super woman. But when it comes to our troubles in this world, the way we know we have overwhelming peace is we immediately run to the Father. We immediately run to the Father. That's the reason why Paul... He's going to write this in Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. Why? Because you ran to, you ran to the Father. That's why Paul also writes Romans 8, 37 through 39. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who, what? Loved us. Why do we run to the Father? Because he loves us. So do you run to the Father when you're troubled? Number two, does your grief give way to joy? Does your grief give way to joy? Verse 16. In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. It's not like Jesus is playing hide and go seek. He's like, in a little while you won't see me, in a little while you will see me. And then in verse 20, he says, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And then he gives this analogy of a woman given birth. Is that in the period of the birth pains, the woman is in anguish and suffering. But just a little while longer, the baby will be born and she will hold her baby and there will be joy. So what Jesus is telling us, particularly here in the 21st century, as he was telling the disciples, is that eventually when you are in me, although you will experience grief just a little while longer, you will experience joy. Do you realize that we have glory inside of us? That this world is not our home. Glory lays on the other side just a little while longer. Shalom is coming. Shalom's coming. And so no matter what you face, no matter what, is, what, what situations and circumstances you face today that would give you grief, that would give you sorrow of heart, as you contemplate the goodness of God, as you contemplate the death and resurrection of Jesus, as you contemplate the doctrines and the teachings of the church, that one day Jesus will make all things new, you will just say to yourself, just a little while longer, just a little while longer, just a little while longer. And as you speak truth over your life, God will bring about the kernel of joy that is in your heart and your grief and your sorrow will turn to joy regardless of what you face. And then the last question that you need to ask yourself, 
Do you live out your purpose of being sent in the world while avoiding not being of the world? Josh, where do you get this from? Actually, if you turn just a couple of chapters to John 20, 21, Jesus has risen from the dead. He appears to his disciples, and here's what he says. Peace, peace, shalom, total flourishing, well-being, completeness, harmony, tranquility, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. What is he sending you out in? Peace. And so the same way that Jesus was sent, we are sent. Let me ask you this. Do you live sent lives? See, I think one of the biggest things that affect Christians today is living in the world and at the same time being of the world. But Jesus has told us to be in the world, but not of the world, because we are living sent lives as we reflect the glory of God, as we share and show the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so therefore we're in the world, but we are not of the world. Therefore we're not affected by the things of the world. We're not held captive. We're not consumed. We're not intoxicated by the things of this world. Why? Because we are captivated and we are intoxicated by King Jesus and the peace that he has given us. You see, when we run to the Father, when we experience the joy, when we live sin as God's people, we will then know that we have overcome the troubles of this world because we have been overwhelmed by the peace of God. Let's pray. Jesus, may you overwhelm us. Overwhelm us with your peace, your shalom, your total flourishing, your completeness, your harmony, your tranquility. Will you overwhelm us when we are in trouble? May we speak truth. May we speak doctrine over our life because we know that in the very doctrines that we speak over our life, you embody those. You are those. You are the resurrection and the life. So, Father, be glorified in us as we are in the world facing troubles every day. But let us not be overcome by those things. Let us be overwhelmed instead by the peace that you bring. Thanks so much, Josh. I'm going to dare to believe in my trouble. Who was with me? Yes. Amen. Let's stand together and respond to God's word. We're going to sing a song we introduced last month that has beautiful lyrics by Fanny Crosby about how we can just sing of Jesus. And perhaps this is the best time to do that in our troubles. We just sing of Jesus. So let's, let's sing together. Here we go. The be of Jesus. His mercy crowns my days. He fills my cup with blessings and turns my heart to praise. My song shall be of Jesus, the precious Lamb of God, who gave himself my ransom and bought me with. 
Bible, you're loved, like you're loved. You're deeply loved. You're loved more than you could ever imagine. And that love drove Jesus to walk a perfect life, die on the cross for the sin of the world, and that love lives in us. Let me read to you John 20, a passage I mentioned at the very end as our benediction. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, With the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And here's what he said, peace be with you. After he said this, guess what he did? He showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Wheaton Bible, you are sent out in the peace of God with the Holy Spirit to be empowered to live out shalom in the world. You are sent.